The following sermon is by Manny Alaniz, pastor at St. Stephen's Chapel in Northwest San Antonio, Texas. For more information, for prayer, or to support us financially, please visit our website at ststephenschapel.org or call us at 210-241-5969. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the holy presence of God, as he illuminates our souls, let us prepare our hearts for the preaching of God's word through prayer. Let us pray together. Oh, most gracious Father, prepare our hearts to receive your divine word, silence in us any voice but yours, so that we may hear you speak to us, so that we may submit our lives to your loving will. Set our souls on fire to burn with passion for you in Christ we pray, amen. Please be seated. Several centuries ago, back in 1601, back in 1601, there was a great but somewhat controversial picture painted uh, by the master painter himself, uh, Michelangelo, Michelangelo, how's that? Michelangelo, the master painter himself painted a picture. Uh, the picture was a scene that depicts a uh, uh, a, a passage in, in the Gospel of St. Luke. It is a, a, an event that takes place in the Gospel of St. Luke. It takes place in the Gospels following the crucifixion, the crucifixion of Christ. In Luke chapter 24, there's a passage that a lot of people refer to as the road to Emmaus, the road to Emmaus. The name of this painting is called The Supper. The Supper at Emmaus, the Supper at Emmaus. Now, you remember the story after the crucifixion of Jesus. The disciples are, are, are just trying to come to grips with the reality that Jesus has been killed, that Jesus has died. And there's no doubt about it. They saw, they saw the gruesomeness of it. They know that Jesus has died. They're devastated depressed by what's going on. You can imagine what they felt. They certainly felt a feeling of hopelessness. Have you ever felt like that? Uh, have that feeling of hopelessness? Like, what do I do? Where do I go? Who do I turn to? Can you imagine a follower of Christ that walked with him? How he or she must have felt during that time for them. Their entire world has collapsed. Their entire world has collapsed. Everything they had hoped for has been taken away. Any dreams of a better life, a better place, any hope of a joy, the joy that they experienced when Jesus walked this earth with them is gone. Think about how they're feeling. 
And we can relate somewhat because it's happened in our life. It's easy to understand why their focus is taken off from the promises that Christ gave them to the devastation of their own lives, to what's going on in their own life at that moment, at that moment. It's happening to us today. It happens to, to, to the world today, especially this year, right? 2020, it's devastating year. COVID-19, the economy is taking a downturn. Careers are being lost. Elections are not the way we may want them. Families are in dispute. There is a general feeling of helplessness. What's going to happen next? Oh, man, there's a resurgence of COVID-19. All oh, the stats are going back. Oh, man, what's going to happen next? A feeling of hopelessness, even for a Christian. We can lose our focus of the promises of God and focus on what's going on right there at that moment. And that's all. And it devastates us. It does give us a feeling of hopelessness. because We're not looking beyond that. We're just looking right there. The disciples and followers of Christ at that time, the time after his crucifixion, are in a state of darkness and hopelessness. Many of them have just run off and hid. Would you do that? Would you do that? I mean, you're over there boasting about Christ. You're telling all your friends about him. They come, you bring him. They, he heals. He does miracles. Everything. And now he is dead. You know what? He's told you, hey, hey, follow me. Follow, follow me. And so they followed him. They're seeing all this amazing stuff. He's dead. He's dead. So you can feel the you can feel this. You can feel their sense of hopelessness and darkness. They just want to run off and hide. Just go off and hide. Well, these disciples, these two disciples are walking back to their village in, in Emmaus, Emmaus, their village. Uh, and guess what? They encounter the risen Lord. They encounter the resurrected Christ. And you know what he says? To, you know what Christ says to them after he has this converse, starts having this conversation with them? Jesus tells them this, and he tells us this as well. He says, oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish ones, when you think that you've lost all hope, Jesus is telling you, oh, foolish one. Oh, you foolish manny, don't you remember? Don't you know my promises, which cannot be broken? That's what he starts off with. He's, oh, foolish one. Then the Lord reveals to them the big picture, the God story regarding our redemption. They did not know who this man was. They did not recognize him as the risen Lord. They didn't discover it until the moment that he breaks the bread with them. And that's the moment. That's the moment that, that Michelangelo, Michelangelo depicts in this, in this portrait, this famous and what controversial portrait. That's the moment that he drew. The reason it's controversial for some is that Jesus is drawn. For some, it's just Jesus is drawn. But for others, it's Jesus is drawn without a, without a beard. He's painted without a beard and without a halo over his head. 
that is got that defied the, the 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 tradition of that day, the tradition of the convention of that time. So it was controversial. Now, that's not all. That's not the only reason this thing is controversial. The the painting depicts the disciples. In the painting, they're 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 vibrant. They're vibrant, meaning they are full of energy. They're enthusiastic. It's like they're getting up. They're, they're like rising from the table. They're seated at the table. They're having the, the supper. Jesus breaks the bread. They never realize who he is, and they're just stand, they're standing up. That's the image that uh, Michelangelo paints. It could certainly be God-inspired. And it is God inspires we look at our passage today, that part with the about the disciples. The disciples are rising up from their seats, their faces are resolute, they're firm, and they're determined. They have a determined look on their face. Theologian and pastor Dr. Brian Chapel says this about the that painting and about the reaction of the disciples to Jesus. He wrote this. Listen to what he says. They realize not only that the river of all history has flowed to this point, but also that they are now a part of the flow, the flow of history. It engulfs them, it envelopes them, inspires them, compels them to be a part of the story by telling the world Christ's story, the gospel. This morning, we're continuing our sermon series, our Advent sermon series, called The God Story. And, and during this time of year, many churches, like ours, have a tradition of celebrating Jesus' first Advent, his first arrival, the birth. Looking forward with that great anticipation to Jesus' second Advent, his return and judgment in The God Story. Jesus Christ is the victor. He is the victor who triumphs over evil, thereby establishing an everlasting kingdom for all, for everyone who believes in him. Everyone who believes in him. That's the story. That's our story. That's a part of the story you and I are a part of, the story of our redemption. Last Sunday, as we're going through this sermon series, we took a look at and eternity passed. We, we went into what we could say is heavenly history. We went to eternity past. We took a look at this divine council that had gathered before creation, before time and space, before God spoke the universe into existence. This God, God's eternal council where the triune God, the Holy Trinity joins together to make a covenant to redeem Sinners. Today, in the God story, we're looking back at human history. So we come to today, we're today, we're here and now, we're seated here and now, and we're looking back at human history. To the to the time of the prophet Daniel. It's about what the seventh century BC, some six hundred plus years before the birth of Christ. So we're going back in human history. This time, 
This is a time of great difficulty for the for God's people, the nation of Israel. What they're suffering at that moment, they're being oppressed. They are suffering persecution by their captors, the Babylonians. Remember the story? They were taken into exile. They were marched from Jerusalem to Babylon. They're being persecuted. And that persecuted is is led by King Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the king at that time. The people of God are in a severe state of depression, a severe state of hopelessness. Hopelessness. Now, we've never been oppressed like that. Some of us get mad because we're paying taxes, and we're mad at that. We've never been oppressed like the nation was at that time. Or the way it was at the time Jesus walked this earth, where another nation is ruling over you. Well, that's what they're facing. It is in this time of great despair that Daniel is given this vision, this dream of the future, of the future. He is given this time, uh, this dream. God is reminding him while the nation, the people of God, are going through all this devastation and this oppression. And he's reminding them at that time through Daniel, as he is reminding us through his prophecy, that God is still sovereign. God is still in control. God has been, is, and always will be in control. So he's trying to bring comfort to the people by giving Daniel this vision for the people. As we look at our passage, we, 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 we're going to examine two things real quick. We'll first look at how God is great. God is great. I don't need to tell you that, do I? If I do, well, how great is he, Manny? He is great. Oh, look, I'm going to use the word great. A lot. And I don't know what else, what other words to use. I guess we could use a lot of a lot of different words to describe great, but I don't know what else to say about God. Well, Daniel tries to describe God in our passage, and he, he does the best job he can. Still can't get it. So we're looking at, we're going to look at first that God is great. God is great. The second thing we're going to see is God is gracious. God is gracious to you me to us. Here's a point for us to notice, okay? Make note of this. This vision that Daniel is given is not of the second advent. It's not of the second coming, okay? It is more of the first coming. It's kind of finalizing the first arrival of Christ, it is not of the second coming when Jesus comes, returns, raptures his people, takes him out of the world, and then spreads his righteous judgment upon the world. It's not that. Not yet. Now, we get glimpses of that. It's not that. Rather, it is a picture of Christ's first coming when Christ becomes like us. God, God becomes like you. In me, flesh and bone, without sin. Christ becomes like the Son of Man, as described here, and wins victory over sin and evil and eternal death. 
He comes and wins victory over that. How? Well, he's born like a human. He's born of a virgin. Lives a perfect life, fulfilling all the perfect requirements that God has placed on humans. Then he lays down his life as a perfect sacrifice, thereby atoning for our sinfulness, for our sins. But death could not hold them. Weird scripture test tells us that death could not hold him. Christ is raised from the dead. Then Jesus ascends to heaven. He ascends to the Father. Then he's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that will never end. That's the picture we're given by the prophet Daniel. Remember, we're going back in history. Daniel doesn't know that Jesus is born of a virgin. He doesn't, he doesn't know that Jesus comes 600 years later. He's just telling us about this vision, and we're putting it together. This demonstrates to us that God is great. He is sovereign over all his creation. This includes all the peoples of the earth. All the peoples of the earth and their governments and their kingdoms and everything else. He is sovereign over evil and the demonic entities that control and manipulate humanity, whether it's in government or kingdoms or world powers, it doesn't matter. Even an evil empire, God is still in control. He's not causing that evil, but he will bring it to judgment or he will allow it until he brings it into judgment. We, we see all this going on at the beginning of this chapter. We didn't read about it, but it's going on at the beginning of this chapter. Now, at the beginning of this chapter, we're looking at human history. We're looking at the world, human history, okay? And, and the reason we know that, when it starts off with the winds, it talks about the winds of heaven are stirring the seas. What that means is there's, there's violence, there's wars, there's battles, there's evil, there's power reigning on this earth. And then he talks about, Daniel has this image of these beasts, beasts. There he's talking about the kingdoms of the world, the kingdoms. Now I want you to, now it's sometimes, see, some of us are not history buffs. We don't like history. Like we start going to sleep. Okay, tell me about history. Texas history? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Sam, Sam Houston? Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right, next class. I want you to listen to this, okay? Because this is divinely inspired. This is going on. This is going on. This is a vision that Daniel's having, and it's telling us about human history. First, he talks about the lion with wings. There's no doubt who he's talking about, the kingdom he's talking about. He's talking about Babylon. Babylon is depicted with a lion, as a lion with wings. And then he sees this other beast. This other beast is a bear. And that bear represents Persia. We know that from history. See, we look back and we know that that's who represents Persia. They themselves have represented themselves as, as a bear. Remember that Persia is the one who defeated Babylon and allowed the people of Israel to return to Jerusalem, to return to Zion. Then he sees this vision, this beast, this leopard. The leopard represents Greece, who is being led by Alexander the Great in rapid succession 
Alexander the Great conquers the world, conquers the world. And then he talks about this fourth beast. And he doesn't identify with, a, with an animal, so to speak. He does try to describe it by iron and iron teeth. But we know now that that represents the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. So he's talking about true human history. Next, what happens next is our passage. We're given an insight into heavenly history. What's going on in heaven? Daniel shifts into a grand courtroom setting. Has anybody ever been in, in trying a trial? Has anybody ever gone to court for anything? Think about that. Maybe the worst thing you've ever had to face in court was just a traffic ticket. A traffic ticket. And when you went in there, if you were brave enough, most of the time you didn't want to go. But if you were brave enough, you went in there, you were terrified. The whole set, there's guys with guns, there's people scared, there's judges banging on the gavel right there, sentencing this guy to go put in jail because he doesn't have the money or whatever the situation is. Pretty intimidating to be in a courtroom forensic setting. It can get your attention. This, this is what's going on. Daniel was seeing this grand courtroom setting, a truly imposing forensic trial setting, a trial setting. So now you have a judge. And in our, in our system of government, we have jurors. But it's a little different there. There we're given a picture of several judges, several judges. And verse 9 tells us that these judges that come in, they're given seats on thrones, thrones. So they're seated. And there you are, right there. Well, you're a part of the scene somewhere because there's multitudes there. Okay, so now you're looking at this courtroom, grand courtroom setting that, that, that is real. And we're talking about now we have several judges that are seated on thrones, on thrones. Then the Supreme Justice, the chief judge, comes into the scene, comes upon the scene. Daniel describes this judge. Well, he does it. He tries to do it with, heaven, with earthly terms. He's trying to describe a heavenly vision of the greatness of this supreme judge. And he first calls him the Ancient of Days. He refers to him the Ancient of Days. This is an attempt by Daniel to describe the greatness of his, uh, of his wisdom and his glory. All the knowledge and wisdom and glory of the Lord God Almighty has now arrived and he is there, the Ancient of Days. The great purity of his being is, is described in his clothing, the whiteness of his clothing. His perfect righteousness, wisdom, and knowledge is described in the color of his hair. Got to be like mine. Gray, right? now, just to get your attention. Trying to describe the glory of God himself. The glory, his glory is depicted by the radiance that burst from the burning wheels of his fiery throne.
God is a consuming fire. We're told that in the New Testament. And from him comes a, a stream of fire that overwhelms all who are standing before him. God, God's power is also shown in this picture by the multitude upon multitude of those who were attending him. There are people, there are thousands upon thousands who serve, who are serving him. Thousands upon thousands. Take a moment because you're servants of God. Uh, you do, you come to worship. Not only do you worship, so all of you do some capacity where you serve God, whether you're training an abuser or set up or take that, or whatever you may do, you serve the Lord. How does that make you feel? There's, a, there's, an, enriching, uh, uh, there's an enrichment right there. It's edifying. It's, it's edifying. You feel very enriched. You feel blessed. Multiply that times a million, a billion. Because now you're in his holy presence. You're near the Lord, serving him. Can you imagine the glorious delight of being able to serve God? To be right there in his holy presence. You, you wouldn't want to leave. I said, Manny, you got to go get something. Or you got to go, no, no, I'm going to stay here. Can somebody else go? I'm going to stay here. No, you, you're, you're going to serve him. You want to be there with him. You just want to just, just want to delight in his glory, his love. Can you imagine being among those who are serving him? For serving God also means to worship God, to worship him. Listen, it is impossible. It's impossible for the prophet Daniel and for all of us to behold the the fullness of God, the way he truly is, the way he truly exists. Here in our passage, the ancient of days is portrayed by some type of human form. And, and, and the reason Daniel is doing that, the reason God is speaking this, is because it's for our benefit, for our benefit so we can comprehend what's going on. Here's what John Calvin says about that. He says, our capacity cannot endure the fullness of that of the of that surpassing glory which essentially belongs to God whenever he appears to us he must necessarily put on a form adaptable to our comprehension so daniel is trying to describe the incomprehensible and he does a good job. As best anyone I know could do. Ah, but see, one day, one day, for those of you who are in Christ, you will be able to behold the face of God. You will be able to behold the face of God one day. And get, but now, for now, all we can do is catch a glimpse of his glory. Just a glimpse. Next, we look at the accused. Who are the accused? Who are they? Who are they? Some of us are fighting that right now. We, you know, because we stand accused. And we know that we would have stood there 
among 10,000 times 10,000 had God not saved us. But who are these accused? Who are these 10,000 times 10,000 who stand before God? Those are the ones who are accused. There are many powerful people in this world. There are many people who control the world. There are many rulers. There are many presidents in the past. There are, there are many kings. There are many, uh, many people who have been led by demonic forces and control this world, that have controlled this world. Nevertheless, everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. Everyone, no exceptions. Everyone will stand trial before the Ancient of Days. Then it tells us, it says, the court sat in judgment. And the books, here we go. Here's a book, Manny Allen, this is written right here. Who else, but, you know, okay, Ruben, you're in here. Everybody's name in here, so the books are open. The court sat in judgment and the books are open. Court is in session. There's no escape, even for a Christian, even for a true believer of Jesus Christ. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, before the judgment seat of God, and praise the Lord. When God looks at you, he will see the righteousness of Christ in you. Praise the Lord. That's how we enter heaven. That's how we gain entrance into heaven, because of his preciousness, his precious blood. This brings us to God's benevolence, God's loving kindness. God is gracious. God is gracious. Now, we jump to verse 13, and now we see another person entering this courtroom, this grand celestial courtroom. Who is it? Well, here's how Daniel describes him. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, like the Son of Man. Uh, this is something amazing, okay? I want you to picture, like, Daniel is given this vision, okay? And after he gets this vision, by the way, he doesn't speak. He can't talk. But he's given this vision, and he sees this glorious stuff. And then all of a sudden, something gets his attention. How, don't you think that would be kind of tough to do? And he's seen this grand vision, and I said, oh, wait, behold, something else gets his attention. That is amazing. <laughs> It's amazing to see, to, to engulf the picture that he's already painted for us. And then something else gets his attention. He says, oh, behold, oh, behold, in the night vision, with the clouds of heaven, there, come, there came one like the Son of Man. Now, certainly talking about something that is coming in human form, in human form, taking place, something coming. Jesus, our beloved Savior, our rescuer, has arrived. He has arrived on the scene. Again, remember, Daniel doesn't know anything about Christ. He knows there's a Messiah coming, but he does not know that Messiah is a God-man. He does not know nothing about Christ. So he describes him, hey, it's man, it's a human. It's like the son of man. Good description for Daniel. Because it does happen, the Son of Man has come. But we must know, and we know, and we should know if we don't know, that this term, the Son of Man, is the self-designation, the designation that Jesus, when he walks this earth, gives himself. He refers to himself 81 times 
in the New Testament as the Son of Man, the Son of Man. I'll give you an example in one verse. In, in Matthew 8.20, it says, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, foxes have holes, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. He didn't say, but I have nowhere, nowhere to rest my head. He says, the Son of Man. He is referring to deity. He is deity. He's referring to deity in flesh, in the flesh. He's referring to the God-man. He's referring to I am human like you. I'm human, the God-man. 81 times in the, in the Gospels, 41 times in the, in the Gospel of St. Matthew. Remember again that Daniel lived 600 years before Christ. So he doesn't know who Christ is. He doesn't have an idea that this image of God, this image of the of, of man, the son of man, is a God, the God-man. Jesus is presented before the ancient of days who gives him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Don't you want to be a part of that kingdom? I do. And I've done nothing, nothing to, to, to deserve it. We've not done nothing to deserve that kingdom, to be a part of that kingdom. This is what we celebrate. That's the gospel. This is what we celebrate. This brings peace and joy to us in desperate times, in times of helplessness, when we're tossed and turned with the hardships of the world, when our lives are shipwrecked, devoured by wickedness in bad times and in good, this is what it's about. This is what we look at. So we take our focus on something very difficult that we have to go through looking for the greater glory, looking at the greater glory of God. A few days ago, my wife Sandy's nephew, Gabriel, a real pleasant young man. I met him just a few weeks ago. He was married. His wife was here. They were here because she was attending med school to be a nurse. She's already graduated, and they moved back to El Paso. Well, just the other day, at 26 years old, he died. He has a heart attack. A massive heart attack. It was unexpected and it's quick. You can imagine the devastation that this family's going through as they try to make sense of this. As they try to make sense of this. See, it is moments like this that keep our focus there, which it needs to be. But in, at the same moment, we need to look at the bigger picture, the grand picture, the God story, the story of our redemption that tells us that life is beyond the here and now, that life is eternal. The kingdom of God awaits us. The kingdom of God begins on this side of heaven, on this side of heaven. See the deception of the world? They're only concerned about here today, here and now, and how successful you can be and, and what you can accomplish and what you can do and how, look, I want to be happy. And if you're not happy, there's something wrong with you. Oh, if you don't 
look, if the world says I should be happy doing this and you're not, there's something wrong with you. That's the deception of this world. And God is saying, uh-uh, this is, this is nothing. This is like a dot in eternity. That there is a bigger picture, a grand picture that you're being called to, that you were about if you have been called and responded. The kingdom of God. To be a part of the kingdom of God, that starts on this side of heaven. You can't wait to the other side of heaven and go, oh, man, no, I, I didn't mean to give my life to you. I, I didn't mean to receive you as good. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. I messed up. Uh, no, I didn't remember. I was thinking about you. Oh, I didn't do anything. It's a little too late then. because, And we're told it's too late in Scripture. Hey, God, Jesus himself tells us. Jesus himself gives us a proclamation, and then he gives us an invitation. Listen to what he says in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The king of glory himself proclaims that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is now, is at hand. Repent, repent. Proclamation, that is the gospel. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He has revealed himself to you. That goes through the world. It's out in the world. That's the proclamation. Okay, but you know what? Jesus doesn't force us to love him. No, he's not going to twist your arm. You better love me, man. He, no, no, I don't love you. He, in fact, he has to pour his love in you for you to love him. And if you don't have the love for God, that hasn't happened yet. Because if the love of God has been poured in you, you can't help but love him. So, you got the proclamation by the king of glory himself, our rescuer, gives us the proclamation, and then he gives us an invitation. Here it comes, right there in that verse. Jesus tells us at the end of verse 15, believe in the gospel. Believe, believe, that's the invitation. Believe in me, believe in me. Have you heard that invitation? Do you believe in him? Have you responded to that invitation? Now, here's a way to respond. I don't believe in you. I got to go. I got stuff to do, people to see. I've got to put my life together because it's a mess. When I get my life together, okay, I'll, I'll think about going with you. That is a deception. Satan is talking. Satan is whispering in your ear saying, Manny, don't believe that. Do what you want to do. Live your best life now. Can you, have you ever heard of something so sinful? Your best life is not on this side of heaven. Now you can have joy and happiness and you can live this beautiful life. Your best life is in the kingdom that's coming. So there is our proclamation. Here is our invitation. Have you responded? Respond. Now if you've responded, if you have responded, if you have received Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, then rejoice because of what it says in verse 18. It says this, that you shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever, forever. Rejoice, rejoice, and do the things that that painting that Michelangelo painted where the, where the disciples are just jumped up, they're, they're vibrant. They're ready to go share the message of the gospel with the world. They're ready to give their life to Christ. 
That's how you respond. If you're not in Christ, judgment awaits. You're, you're among the ten thousands of ten thousands that are going to be judged. Perfect judgment, perfect judgment, perfect condemnation. In the God story, Jesus is the victor who triumphs over evil, thereby establishing an everlasting kingdom for everyone who believes in him. Let us pray. Gracious one. We rejoice in your words today. You've been listening to Manny Alanese, pastor at St. Stephen's Chapel. For more information about our church, visit our website at ststephenschapel.org or call us at 210-241-5969. Please join us prayerfully and financially as we seek to glorify God by preaching his word and spreading the gospel of grace in boldness and selflessness.